Welcome to the Breakfast Leadership Show, where we interview global thought leaders on business, leadership, and life. Here's your host, keynote speaker, best-selling author, and chief burnout officer of the Breakfast Leadership Network, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got Graham Boyd online. Graham, how are you today? I am doing extremely well today, Michael, and really looking forward to this conversation. I am too. And we've had, you know, a little bit of a conversation before we started. And, you know, we're both very passionate and understanding of what burnout can do. But before we dive too much into it, why don't you share a little bit about yourself with the audience? Thank you, Michael. Grand. So, I was born in Africa and grew up in South Africa. I'm 56 now, so project back. That means I was a at school and a teenager during the final era of apartheid. And yeah, as you can imagine, in that kind of context, I grew up really wondering how on earth could this country change and get to where it absolutely needed to go in in any way that was going to be, let me say, safe for me to travel along that journey. You know, there was there were not many examples of other countries who'd gone through such a major transformation from a very trapped apartheid-like political and power system to one of true democracy. So as you can imagine, in that kind of context, especially if you add in my nature is quite introverted and I have a very strong sense of fairness, as a teenager, I was dealing with bouts of depression on a regular basis. And it's something that has since come back to me on various other occasions. The the bit where that links to where we're going in this conversation is it's given me a very deep understanding of the impact of the structures that you're in and the pre-shaped types of interactions that you are trapped in, the impact that that has on each of us as individuals. And so when in during the 2008 financial crash, I decided to leave Procter & Gamble and focus my attention on figuring out what's really making it so difficult for us to thrive at work and for us to build businesses that are truly capable of addressing the world's problems. You know, that, that time in South Africa gave me a lot of insights and in particular, the, what really worked in the South African transformation is captured in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that deep recognition that all individuals were as much victims of the system as they were aggressors. And so that recognition that the white army police colonel might be as much a victim of the apartheid system that he was born into as the ANC armed wing leader. And that opened up space for deep transformation that shifted it from individuals thinking all of the load is me. It's just me. I have to carry everything. I have to fix my depression. I have to fix my burnout 
into a recognition of what is me, and it's up to me to change that, and what is the system I'm embedded in. And then either I need to get out of the system or I need to rebuild the system from the ground up and what can I do to rebuild, which is the title of the book. No, it's an amazing book, and I love how you framed it that way, because when people are stressed or burned out or depressed, we take it on ourselves. We think, okay, it's 100% our fault. It's all on us, when in fact, there are other systematic situations or environments, situations, could be work, could be home. Typically, as we often see, it tends to be more the workplace that is a, a big driver of burnout. But you know, family dynamics as well can create those challenges as well. But ultimately, knowing what you can do yourself to live your best life and do the things that are best for you, and then have the clarity and this is a big thing for a lot of people is and i know you you believe in this as well is having the clarity to know okay this is the things that i need to work on for me and these are the things that i need to work on regarding my work situation when you have clarity you'll see what you can do but when you're in a deep depression or in a burned out state all you see is, if anything, is fog. You're, you're not clear. You, and anything you do may or may not be beneficial. And it might be a situation where you're just trying anything. And, and unfortunately, that you're just walking aimlessly in the woods. And who knows what you're going to encounter if you do it that way. So the clarity thing comes in. But in order to get that clarity, you have to get yourself into a more healthy physical and mental state. And sometimes that is might be the biggest hurdle of all for some of us. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's one of the challenges that Jack, my co-author, and I had writing the book was you know, Jack's profession is economics. He's an economics professor in the US. And my, well, my first profession was physics, and I intended to become a physics professor. Then I was an R&D manager in Procter & Gamble, which, as I said, I left 12 years ago to focus on how can we address the big global challenges we face through the power of business. Now, what we realized was that we had to write a book that spanned everything, you know, across the six strata that we talk about in the book, which is stratum one is how do we work within ourselves, our inner interactions? Because until we can get ourselves internally into a space where we have the space, we have the capacity in ourselves to actually see what's happening and take distance from ourselves, we're not going to be able to work effectively with other people interact with them, which is what we have as stratum two, our interactions with other people. And until we can interact effectively with other people, we're going to struggle with stratum three, which is organization design, roles, accountabilities, how the workplace is structured. You know, and most of the initiatives that we see at the moment are looking at one or perhaps two of those strata to try and address 
either the problems that we're facing, be it burnout or whatever, or to grasp the opportunities that are ahead of us. So Jack, as an economist, was focusing on the topmost stratum, stratum six, the global economy. For me, as a business leader, and these days, as a startup creator, we're building a startup factory. Most people in the startup world focus on the first three strata. The, in fact, most of them just focus on the third stratum of how do you design the organization. They don't even look properly at the interhuman and the inner human interactions. But what we have realized is what's really crucial and not visible to many people is stratum four which is how do the different stakeholders in the company interact with each other? What is the arena for the investors, the executives, the staff, the customers, the suppliers, perhaps the city that the business is in, its relationship with natural capital? What is the arena, the, the space that we've built for those to interact with? And the deeper I dived into that after leaving P&G, and even within Procter & Gamble, it was really clear to me, we've built in Stratum 4 structures that are designed to create trust between investors that don't know each other. But in today's world, actually, financial capital is the plentiful one. It's the human capitals and the natural capitals that are scarce. So we actually need structures that will create trust between the capitals and the representatives of all of the capitals between each other. And that these are all connected. If we incorporate in stratum four in that way, then we create a huge space for psychological safety in the workplace for all of the individuals. So there's this dynamic interplay between all of these different layers. Now, clearly, if you're in a large multinational, you're not going to be able to change the way that the company is incorporated quickly. You know, I, I look at a superb example of Paul Polman, the former CEO of Unilever, and on his first day in the job, he made a this very decisive statement around quarterly reports and saying the kinds of investors that demand quarterly reports from us are not the investors that we want in Unilever for its long-term journey. Fast forward nine years, and he was fighting off a hostile takeover bid from Kraft. So he needed to dial back on some of his initiatives. Had he been incorporated as a true multi-stakeholder, multi-capital company, he would have had all of the right voices in play to not need to fight off that action. So that's a, a superb example of somebody who could have taken on all of this load that was coming from the space that he was forced to play in personally. Now, from what I know, he didn't. He was able to recognize what was happening inside himself, 
in his interaction between others, in how the organization designed around work processes and the constraints he was under because of how it was incorporated. But to recognize that, he need, at stratum four, he needed to have really good practices in the first stratum of mediating his inner interaction so that he could maintain himself at maximum capacity to see what was happening in each stratum. It's an amazing example, and there's so many things that uh, what you just said you know, jumps out at me, and a couple things in particular. The first one, and actually both these things are somewhat COVID-related, where the human interaction, you know, for so long, many of us have been physically distanced away from others. You know, our interactions have been through Zoom calls or Microsoft Teams or phone calls and not face-to-face in the office or place of work. So we've been doing a lot of things in a virtual type of thing. And now that things are easing up in certain parts of the world, we're starting to interact with our colleagues again, face-to-face. And for many of us, it, there, there's, I, and I've watched this dynamic. A lot of people have, have forgotten how to interact with people. Mm-hmm. There's certain nuances of that human interaction that seems foreign to many of us, which is so strange because it, it from a time stamp component, it's been less than two years. But it's amazing mm-hmm. how dynamic things have changed and how we interact with people. And I know there's a lot of things going into that. There's people that are afraid of contracting COVID or just, they're just out of, out of practice and how to interact with people uh, because of, you know, quite frankly, COVID has been very traumatic to a lot of people. But I think that, you know, that, that is one key thing. And then, you know, the second thing that you had mentioned on too is where the financial capital and we see that even in the U.S. where you're seeing a lot more retail investors that are diving in and buying stocks and investing in the market and businesses' values are going up. So the financial capital is, is there you know, for a mm-hmm. lot of situations. But the resources, you know, we're, the supply chain on many products and services are you know, really impacted where you can't get things whether it's in construction or food supplies, or we all remember the toilet paper situation in the beginning of the pandemic, all of those things. Um, people are going to have toilet paper stocked up for decades, I think, but that's another story for another day. But the human side of things, we're seeing organizations that are having a really difficult time either recruiting or retaining key talent because this pandemic has shifted perspectives for some people. And there's a variety, again, a variety of different reasons why I think, but I'd love to hear your thoughts specifically on on the human capital side of things, you know, because organizations are either A, not having the you know, the ability to find talent in certain sectors, and also a lot of key talent are deciding, you know what, I want to do something different. You know, like in your situation when you left PG, you know, after the Great Recession of uh, 2008 and 2009. We're seeing that again. A lot of key people are leaving key roles because they just, they, they're tired, they're burned out. Could be a variety of different reasons, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that a little bit. Yes. So it's a superb area to explore. Just yesterday, I was looking at a report from Microsoft and the survey that they did 
they were seeing 41% of people in the North America wanting to change their job. And very similar numbers in a survey in the UK and Ireland, 38% of people wanting to change their job and change their job very soon, not at some point in the distant future. So what I'm seeing as over the past few decades, there's been a growing disconnect between the financial side of what drives businesses centered around quarterly reports and keeping the quarterly financials in line with the predictions to investors and smooth versus human beings. And human beings operate on a 10-year to 20-year cycle. You know, I was studying um, in primary school and high school for 15 years and, well, no, 12 years. And then at university to get up to the end of PhD, that was an eight-year journey. So, you know, it's decade by decade. And this disconnect is causing growing problems. And it's a disconnect that also, to digress slightly, we were talking about supply chains. If we look at how the economy worked, say, 50 to 60 years ago, it was primarily relatively small local businesses where the suppliers and customers of a business were in the same city. The people knew each other. The investors in one business were also likely to be the investors in another business. So you could get to that point of the perfect mix of competition and collaboration to act long-term. And we've lost a lot of that, which is a big part of what we bring in with incorporating in layer four in a way that recognizes all capitals and all stakeholders. What that means is that the staff of the company have enough governance power to keep the perspective at the right balance between what's necessary about a quarterly focus and what's necessary about a decade-long focus and what might be necessary about a 100-year focus. And what that then means is that the company can truly sit at that high-performance sweet spot. Yeah. And if you look at any racing driver, yeah, a, a racing car, be it Formula One, for example, during the course of the race from start to finish, that car is constantly being adjusted by the driver immediately to keep it in the sweet spot of maximum performance but also, you know, when do they change tires, effects that the engineers can have on the car during the race, switching from one engine mode to another, constantly keeping it in the sweet spot. Business at the moment struggles to do that, in particular for staff, because all of the power 
lies in the hands of the general meeting, which is where the investors have the vote. And so given a contradiction between what will keep the company at high performance over a 10-year period versus the quarterly financial returns, all of the governance power is in the hands of the people steering the quarterly return end rather than in what does this mean over a 10, 20-year perspective, uh, which is where the staff sit. So, yeah, yeah I'll pause there. No, it's it's so funny because you see the synergies of what's happened over the last couple of years, but then there's been a buildup to it as well that's kind of created this system or environment going back to you know what we talked about earlier, where the the system and the design and how we as a society and we as employees and we as organizations have kind of designed these things. And I think post-pandemic, the systems and the office layout and the way things were designed from before in many organizations will be square peg, round hole type of situation going forward. Not just because of, okay, people are working remotely and some are coming in part-time and then there are people that are coming in all the time. There's more to it than that. And the dynamics that we haven't even seen yet, you know, we'll pick on supply chain for a second. It's going to be interesting to see what supply chain does because the demand for things has been really strange and the real, you know, just in time inventory kind of stuff um, has become problematic in a lot of areas. We, you know, we hear about it in the computer chips that surprise, they're in everything. Well, we didn't necessarily know that until you have Ford Motor Company that has tens of thousands of F-150 pickup trucks sitting in abandoned lots all over Detroit and other places because they can't put the chips in. So you, you think, okay, maybe we need to have a lower end F-150 that doesn't require a chip. Well, that that completely changes the engineering side of things. But Sometimes simple is better and it's going to be in cars didn't always have computer chips. So you know, the, the technology is there, but um, pardon the pun there, you know, technology and chip, you know, make something that's not computers, but it's going to be an interesting dynamic to see where things go. And the systems are going to have to be more agile and nimble than they've ever been before. You know, it, instead of, okay, here's how everything's going to be set up. I use the analogy. Uh, instead of using a pen or a Sharpie, you're going to use a pencil because you're going to need that eraser because we're going to be erasing things and changing things as we go. And the organizations that are able to do that, I think, are the ones that are going to be able to thrive and also bring in that top talent because people will be excited to work in that type of environment instead of the rigid square box you fit in here. Henry Ford design of assembly line 40 hours a week, five days a week mentality that's been prevalent in and how people have worked for over a century. And the changes are, are here and they're continuing to evolve. And it's going to be an interesting dynamic to see how all of the pieces start to work and how that's going to impact stress, burnout, depression, and everything else that we're seeing. Yes, yes, absolutely. I'd like to pick up on two things there. Um, The first thing I want to tap into is 
a sense of control or agency. Can I change things? Can I do things? And I, one of the biggest issues today in the workplace is the extent to which people think nothing can change. We're trapped in this way of doing work. All I can do is choose to go from the company I am in to another company that is more or less the same. Nothing is really going to change. What that means, Keegan writes about, or I think introduced the concept of job one and job two. Job one being what you were hired to do, and job two being everything else you need to do at work, put effort and energy into to survive, to stay safe, to look good in front of your boss and your peers. And the amount of time and energy that people are putting into job two over the past decade has steadily grown. And I think part of what is happening today is that people are saying, I'm sick and tired of putting in 60, 70, 80% of my effort into just surviving and only 20, 30, 40% into delivering results, doing my work. Now, in this kind of context, you end up primarily in large companies with the company being bigger and bigger and slower and slower. So what is the alternative? Well, the alternative then to get more agility, to get people who are reconnected with themselves, who are showing up with full energy, full passionate work, is the startup world. So a lot of people are looking at moving into the startup world. However, the way that we build businesses today means that, yes, in the startup world, you have a lot of speed and agility, but you lack the scale, you lack the completeness to do really disruptive, innovative things. And as an example, Elon Musk and Tesla is one of the rare examples of somebody who has managed to, in essence, what he's done, and I'm just talking about Tesla, not anything else he's involved in, but just Tesla, I look at as four separate companies, four separate startups that had to start up together for any of them to succeed. He's had to start up a company that builds a new kind of automotive computer that happens to sit on four wheels with an engine. He's had to build an electric vehicle that that computer operates in. And in some senses, those could be two completely distinct startups. He's had to build a completely new approach to batteries, which is a third startup. It's a battery business. And he's had to build a charging network, basically a new kind of filling station business. So he's had to build four businesses in one for any one of those businesses to have any chance of success. That is typical in the startup world if you want to be really disruptive. So what we need is to make the impossible normal. We need to find ways of building completely new business ecosystems where we're simultaneously building business ecosystems that have the speed 
the innovation capacity, the capacity to try things out, to experiment, to compete of the startup world and the size and scale of the three M's, the Procter and Gambles, the Unilevers, the multinationals of the world. We can't do that with our existing ways of incorporating. Now, I'll add into that what is rising rapidly is the whole gig economy. A lot of people want to be freelancers. Yes, there are those who are forced into it. That's not healthy and we need to address that. But a lot of people want to be freelancers. They want to be working in two or three or four different companies simultaneously. They want to be working on their computer from Bali or high up in a mountain in India or wherever. So all of this is changing. We, we need to recognize that the spaces we're in, the structures, the interactions are things that we've invented to do a job that was new a hundred years ago. We can reinvent them to do the job we have in front of us right now. And that part of that job is one where everybody is growing, developing at work and is able to be in an entire workspace and life space where they're living the life they want to live. It's very hard to do it in today's structures, but it can be done. And what brings me joy and gets me out of bed excited in the morning is thinking we can multi-solve. It's not one solution for each challenge that the world is facing. What we need is to find one coherent solution that solves multiple challenges. And that's the essence of what I'm up to now, what the book Rebuild describes, and what we're developing with our startup factory is a coherent multi-solution approach. And I love the fact that you know, we've had this conversation and the book and, and the work that, that you're doing um, that's going to make the workplace better for everyone, not just the employers and the employees, but society as a whole. So, Graham, I've loved this conversation. Where can people find out more about you, uh, where they can pick up the book and anything else you'd like to share? Gladly. So, you can find out more about me and pick up access to the book on my website, graham-boyd.biz. The book is in there. Book title is Rebuild the Economy, Leadership and You, a toolkit for builders of a better world. On the website, for people who want to taste the book, there's a place where you can download the PDF. And the book is available on multiplicity of online bookstores across the world. And if anybody is interested in contacting us around taking part in one of our startup programs, you can contact us via our company website, which is www.evolutesix.com. And I'll definitely have all that information in the show notes. So, Graham, thank you again for your time today. Really appreciate you and this amazing work you're doing. Only a pleasure. Thank you very much, Michael. It has been 
superb talking to you. Thanks for listening to The Breakfast Leadership Show, part of the Breakfast Leadership Network. Visit breakfastleadership.com for tips on empowering your business and your life.